This week had many criminal law stories in the news. Uh, Northwestern students charged for uh, putting out a parody newspaper. The charges were brought then dropped. We're going to talk about that. The Michigan mother found guilty, as we talked about earlier in the show, with a set of precedent. And also our former Brolingbrook convicted murderer, Drew Peterson, back in the news. He's getting a mental fitness evaluation and claiming his lawyers were incompetent. We're going to be talking about all of those cases with a friend of the Karen Conti show, Damon Sharonis, one of the finest criminal defense lawyers in Chicago. He's the founder of Sharonis and Parenti. He's a fierce advocate for people charged with federal white collar, violent crimes, drug and sex crimes. He represented film mogul Harvey Weinstein in his sexual assault case and represented a defendant in the mob secrets trial. Damon, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Karen, and I love the song that introduces this segment. That that will be maybe your theme song, Damon. Um, it's, it's Bobby Fuller 4 by way of The Clash. I thought it was a, a perfect uh, perfect choice. Good, yes, good to be talking to Karen. It's a good theme song. Good. I just want to know, are you, how's your Valentine's Day shopping with that saint of a wife you have? You know, I, I before you answer that, I, I checked it out. I actually was just Googling, mm-hmm. random Googling, you know, as you do on a Sunday morning when you have your coffee in front of you. And do you know that the uh, violent crime goes way up on Valentine's Day? Did you know that? Oh, I did not know that. I know it does on Super Bowl Sunday. I, I do. I have, I have heard that, um, but I did not know about Valentine's Day. In other words, you know, I, I told uh, Annie that it might be a little late because I have to fly in her gift uh, being custom made in Italy. So I told her it could be four or five months before it gets here. And by then she probably won't remember. So that's the plan. Lawyer, liar. They sound very similar sometimes, Damon. Um, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this Michigan school shooter case. I, I talked a little bit about it uh, earlier with my listeners. I just had people call in, you know, should parents be held responsible for these types of things? I think there's a lot of outcry these days because of all the crime that's going on. How do the parents not know? Should they be held responsible? Generally speaking, are parents criminally responsible for the acts of their children? Generally speaking, you don't see a lot of charges like this, I guess is the best way to put it, right? Um, so I've never represented a client where a parent has been you know, held criminally responsible for something their child did. There are things in Illinois, there are reckless conduct charges, there are, are things along those lines where you could potentially um, bring charges, but it, it doesn't happen all that often. So this case was, you know, and I've been following this case and I've been doing some research on it. You know, this, this case, I think, was driven mainly, one, by the law in Michigan, which uh, allows for these types of charges to be brought more freely. And the facts in this case were just, they seemed pretty egregious. They did, didn't they? I mean, you don't, I mean, with all the school shooting cases that you say, oh, parents could have done better. This was like, on all aspects, this kid was crying out for help. I mean, he was. Yeah, and the school, the school, the school as well, you know, and and I, and I actually watched the, the prosecutor's closing argument in preparation for this. And I sort of read up on the cases and, you know, I don't think any, you know, any rational person thinks that, you know, the Crumbleys wanted anything like this to happen, but there were a lot of warning signs. And, you know, in, in the, the prosecutor, I think, did a good job of marshalling all that evidence together and saying that the, the family actually owed a duty to these students um, to sort of almost to protect them and that there were all these warning signs and all they had to do was take certain steps to stop it. And they could have, you know, you had a, and, and what was interesting to me is that the prosecutor almost made Ethan Crumbley sound like a victim here. You know, and he was the shooter because here was a young man who who was crying out for help, who said he was having almost hallucinations and his parents didn't do anything. So I thought that was an interesting way the prosecution sort of wove the actual shooter into their argument as being almost victimized by this. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think the four person came out and was interviewed and said that the, the key to at least her was the idea that the mother was the last person who had control of the gun. So it seemed to me that what she was saying is the gun issue it had, maybe, had maybe all of those things happened, but the gun was the issue. And, and that it is like, it, it just doesn't speak of any rational parent whose kid is crying out for help, whose kid is making pictures of being shot and, and looking, Googling bullets while in, in, instead of doing his math homework, uh, they buy him a gun, a semi-automatic gun. It, it just doesn't make sure. any sense. Yeah, and not only that, you know, the you know the prosecution really went, you know, they claimed they weren't doing this, but you know they they had text messages, you know, where the mom was saying, "Hey, don't get caught next time" or something like that. They also had a text message where I guess when when the mom showed up at the police station, she texted her boss right away and said, "Don't hold me responsible for what my son did. I need my job." And they kept introducing evidence of how they would go to their horse farm. And, you know, they tried to paint a picture of, like, really bad parents. you got to be careful about stuff like that. You know, in court, prosecutors can manipulate evidence. They do it all the time. And they do it in a way, um, you know, to get their point across. And I'm not saying these people were great parents, but, you know, you only saw sort of a snapshot of their relationship with their child. And, you know, the prosecutor did an effective job, certainly. And, you know, one of the things that I thought, uh, is this is this foul play? They they basically were t- saying the mom was having an affair. You know, just to, obviously the, the idea is to dirty her up. But, you know, oh, she was too busy having an affair to take care of her child. You know, one of the things that I'm worried about in a case like this um, is the idea that our mother's going to be targeted more because mothers have traditionally been the ones who are tasked with the heavy lifting when it comes to raising children. Not always. It's changing quite a bit. Uh, But, you know, because the mothers are maybe home more, maybe spending more time and doing some of these uh, school, you know, going to the school and dealing with the the issues there. Do you think that's a fair uh, concern that mothers are going to be targeted? You know, I, I, I understand sort of where you're, where you're, why you're saying that, where you're coming from. I think it, everything's going to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, right? And I think if it's a mother or a father, when the facts cry out like they did in this case, charges are going to come. Now, one of the problems, and I've been, you know, sort of listening to some of the pundits talk about it, is there's a fear that is this going to be sort of the slippery slope argument. We're now, you know, inner city kids who are involved in gangs, you know, commit shootings and what their parents are now going to get arrested. And, you know, I don't think it's going to get to that level, but there are real concerns once the prosecution kicks open a door, you know, they rarely don't walk through it. And what you have in these situations is such a public outcry and such a disgust amongst, you know, the entire nation. What can we do? Right. Gun reform isn't really working. So I think that, you know, prosecuting attorneys are saying, well, look, maybe maybe if we go after parents, maybe if some of them go to jail, you know, uh, parents are going to take more responsibility within their home. Now, whether that's true or not, who knows? But, you know, don't think that that's not an agenda. Uh, that that is going through you know district attorney's offices throughout the country, and you know we had uh, Eric Reinhardt, the state's attorney from Lake County, uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and you know I mean they're elected officials, and so when you have a parade shooting on Fourth of July when innocent children and people are being shot, there's a, just such an outcry for something. You know the kid's going to go to jail, right? He's going to go to jail. There's no question about that. But you know who else can be held responsible? And I think that some of the prosecutors and, and I'm not saying that it's even wrong to give people justice like that, but I but I, I think you're right. It's a slippery slope, and it's going to be interesting to see 
uh, if more prosecutors take the rope here and and bring these charges. Just before we go to a break, Damon, the father is scheduled to go to trial uh, early next month. What does this verdict mean, do you think, for the father? Well, I don't think it's good news for him, right? You know, first, it's going to be hard for him to get a fair trial because everybody who's going to be sitting on that jury is going to know his wife was convicted. I think his wife was trying to blame him in part for being the one who was more responsible, which isn't unusual because he was the one who was in charge of sort of collecting the gun and securing the gun. So, you know, fingers were pointed at him, you know, but then again, I don't know who his lawyer is. He's going to have different jurors and it is a defensive case. Like, regardless, for the mother, for the father, this was not a slam dunk for the government. This was a case that is very defensible, and hopefully his lawyers are coming up with a good theory, and they can present it in court, because I, I do not think it's you know, a fate to complete that he's going to get convicted. And he may be cutting a deal, look, seeing the writing yeah, on the wall, given, right, given yeah, all of sure. it. Yeah. We're talking to Damon Sharonis. He's one of the prominent criminal defense lawyers here in Chicago. And when we come back, we'll finish talking about this case. And then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Drew Peterson matter and the Northwestern students who were charged with uh, theft of services for putting out a parody newspaper. You're listening to WGN. Damon Sharonis is a real good lawyer. He's here with us uh, talking about the criminal cases of the week. Um, one last question about this school shooting mother. What are the laws in Illinois about locking up your gun? I know the laws are kind of all over this place when it comes state to state, but what do people need to know about locking up their gun? You know, in, in Illinois, there is a, a charge that's essentially child endangerment, right? Um, and that's that's a situation where you, you do something that puts your child in sort of circumstances of danger. That's a class A misdemeanor. So that could be a potential charge. Um, and I had dealt with cases, cases where, um, you know, children had, had unfortunately, had, had using their parents' guns accidentally, and no charges have been filed. So, you know, I, I think DCFS oftentimes will get involved in those situations because I think if the, if the police say, look, this was an accident, compounding it with a criminal prosecution, I think sometimes it's just too much and they allow DCFS to get involved. It's a good idea to lock up your guns if you have kids, though, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it just, uh, I, I know that people resist it, and I know the gun lobbies uh, lobby against these laws, you know, because the argument, I suppose, is that if you really need to use that gun, you don't want it locked up, you want it ready and, and available for use. Um, but that that whole combination, and I, I did do some research on this, Damon. I don't know if you've seen these statistics, but in states where they have stronger laws to lock up guns, uh, there are there's a huge reduction in children using guns to hurt themselves, to hurt others, and particularly in the case of suicide by children. Um, yeah. And so it seems to me that these gun laws really do help help the situation. Yeah, you shouldn't even need a law. It's just common sense, right? I mean, if you have a gun and you have children, lock them up. It's just, but, you know, that's a longer conversation, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about Drew Peterson, if we have to. Uh, he's the former Bolingbroke police officer. It's so funny because this happened a while ago, and some young people I was talking to the other day didn't remember who he was, which is maybe a good thing. Yeah. Um, but he was convicted of murdering his third wife, and then he was suspected of killing his fourth wife, who remains missing. Um, and then he was also convicted of attempting to have the Will County prosecutor assassinated. So just to add add to that, uh, he was in court and he, he's supposed to get a mental fitness evaluation. Do you know why? 
I don't. No, there's a couple of possibilities, right? You know, a mental fitness evaluation. I mean, he has a current case that's sort of pending on post-conviction. And a, men, and a fitness evaluation oftentimes is done to determine if your client is fit to stand trial or to determine whether or not your client was sane at the time of a, uh, a crime or whether he understood Miranda. So I'm not sure why uh, this is going on. There are a couple possibilities. One, whenever a defense attorney or a judge has a bona fide doubt as to somebody's fitness, they have to raise it. So if, if Drew Peterson's lawyers are basically saying, we can't communicate with him, he can't help us right now, maybe that's why they're doing a fitness hearing. <clears throat> there is another very rarely used sort of uh, fitness hearing. It's called a retrospective fitness determination. And that's used in situations where clients or defendants, I should say, um, did not get a fitness evaluation during their trial, and they claim later that they should have. And so then what the courts will do is they will have a fitness hearing in retrospect to determine if, you know, at the time they should have been found fit. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty complicated process. But, you know, and, and, I, and I doubt that that's the reason. And the reason I doubt that is why, because his post-conviction claim is that his lawyers wouldn't let him testify. So it would be weird for them to now say he was not fit at the time of the trial, but his lawyer should have let him testify. So those are sort of opposite arguments. So I, I don't know the answer, but those are a couple possibilities. Yeah, and we don't know where he's being held, I, I, I don't think. I think he's been moved around, and maybe we don't know exactly where he is just due to his status as a former police officer. I don't know if you saw the yeah. picture of him in court. He looks every bit of 70. He he. He does. It's he not does. a trip to the spa to spend to spend no, time. No, no, it's not not a good place to be. Um, you know, you you've seen people in prison. You've gone there. You spent a lot of time with with people. Um, what does it What does it do for a person like Drew Peterson, a person who enjoyed a pretty affluent lifestyle? He, you know, uh, was a police officer. He had some standing in the community. What What is it? You know, can you tell our listeners? I mean, you don't know for sure for sure how it's affecting him, but how do you think it, it is affecting him? I mean, I think it affects people in different ways, but I, I can tell you this. I've been to federal penitentiaries. I've been to state penitentiaries. I've been to Menard, to Terre Haute, is a federal prison. It, it's, it's not an easy place to survive. It's not an easy place to live, and it, and it kind of sucks the life out of you. It's a dangerous place oftentimes. You don't have any freedoms. And, hey, you know, some people, that's, that's the way it should be. But I think for somebody like him who, from all uh, all intents and purposes, seem like a pretty arrogant guy, um, you know, to end up there, uh, I'm sure it's, you know, a living hell for him. May even be harder on him. Oh, for sure. You know. What's sad is you, you I've, I've represented some clients who unfortunately have been in and out of, of prisons, you know, for a, lar- a large portion of their adult lives. And for them, you know, it's a way of life. Um, somebody like Drew Peterson, uh, you know, this was something that happened later in his life where he had lived a long life without ever, not only never been in jail, but putting people in jail. So for him, I think it's certainly um, doubly uh, painful. And I think a lot of people would say, so what? <laughs> you know, yeah, and, right. And, I mean, you know, it's, uh, you, it, you it, play it, those games, you win those prizes. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's a good way to put it. And, you know, it, it, and it's not a walk in the park. I mean, if anyone who spends any time in these places like Menard, I spend time there with, with a certain serial killer, former client of mine. And, you know, I'm telling you, it's like one hour is like 20 hours there. It's, it's the worst. It's the worst. It's, it's horrible. It's horrific. It's, yeah. and, you know, and, you know, if people don't think that's punishment, I don't. I don't wish you going there on anyone, but uh, please know that it, and, it is and, punishment. And then I've had clients who played tennis in federal camps. You know, I mean, so it it, it runs the gamut. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's uh, and let's talk briefly about this this uh, claim that Drew Peterson is making that his lawyers were ineffective because they wouldn't let him testify. And let me just remind you, you know, we had Joel Brodsky who is now disbarred, um, was I think the lead counsel. We had Joe Lopez, who was a prominent criminal defense lawyer, Ralph Medchik, also a very prominent criminal defense lawyer, and Daryl Goldberg, who was a younger uh, lawyer, and also Steve Greenberg, who represented R. Kelly, among other people. So yeah. how does this argument go? And does this have, Could this have any traction? It's very, very hard. First, you know, for ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to show that your lawyer fell below, you know, a standard, uh, you know, a standard of reasonableness and that it made a difference. In other words, that, you know, but for his ineffective assistance, the outcome would have been different. The problem with this type of claim is in every case when the government rests, if your client is not going to testify, you know, the judge will ask you, Mr. Sharon, is your client going to testify? No, he's not. And then the judge enters into a conversation with the defendant, and he says, look, Mr. Sharonis has told me that you're not going to testify. It's not up to him. It's your right to do that. And then he go, and then good judges will go through a very long colloquy for this very reason, because it's not up to me whether a client testifies. I can only give them advice. So I'm sure what happened in this case is the judge asked Mr. Peterson if he was going to testify, went through the fact that it was his right, and he said no. So now it's hard to come back. You would really have to show some serious behind-the-scenes, you know, issues where the lawyer, you know, said I was going to quit if you testify or refuse to let you testify, something that's almost never reached. So it's a very hard um, hill to climb for, for a defendant. Because think about it. Whenever somebody loses a case, what do they say? Well, I wish I would have testified, right? Right. Um, so, you know, courts are very, look at those very warily. And. You know, just from what you know of the case, would it have been smart? Just if you just took a stab at it and an answer to this, would would that have been smart for him to testify? I would think that um, even a prosecutor would have a, a, a pretty good time cross-examining uh, on a case like that. So, you know, no, in a case like that, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. If you And they mounted the best defense they could, you know, and I know a lot of those lawyers, and I have a lot of respect for a lot of those lawyers. Um, no, I think it was probably a good idea for him not to testify. And one final question before we take a break. Joel Brodsky was uh, later stripped of his law license for, for reasons uh, other than this. Um, does that weigh in on it? Would, would a court say, wow, he's a disbarred lawyer, so maybe he's more ineffective? Is that way in? You know, they'd have to have a hearing on it. He only he didn't have just one lawyer, right? You know, I mean, there was a team there, and I think they would probably all be called to testify at a hearing if it got to that point, and it's very unlikely it would be successful. We're talking to Damon Sharonis. Uh, he's a criminal defense lawyer, one of the best here in Illinois. Sharonis and Parenti is his firm. Damon, if we have any listeners out there who are in big trouble, can you give them your contact information? Sure. You know, my website is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. It's uh, just uh, com, and it links the phone numbers and emails and bad signals. 
and all that stuff. <laughs> That's great. Um, and when we come back, we're going to do one more session with uh, Damon, and then we're going to be taking your legal questions. So if you have legal questions on any topic, uh, I'll try to uh, give you an answer or steer you in the right direction. The number here is 312-981-7200, 312-981-7200. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about this case. I just want to kind of tee it up here. Uh, I don't know if you read about it, but two Northwestern students, they happen to be African-American, were charged with theft of services. And what they did was they issued a newspaper that looked similar to the newspaper that the school put out, a kind of a parody. And they were charged, and uh, apparently there were 6,000 students who signed a petition saying that's not fair, this was just a joke. Apparently the, the parody was critical of the way the school is handling the Gaza uh, Israel uh, war issue and uh, charges were dropped. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what is theft of services? Why would these charges have been brought in the first place? And how did the charges get dropped? And does political pressure and public pressure lead to these charges being dropped? You're listening to the Karen Conti Show on WGN. Welcome back. We're here with Damon Sharonas. I don't know if you have a call in to the higher man up there or the woman, as might be. Um, let's talk a little bit about this case out of Northwestern University. Two students were charged with theft of services for issuing a parody of a school newspaper that criticized the school's position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What is theft of services exactly? We see that with political prosecutions. I don't think I've ever seen it with something like this. Well, I, you're very proud of me, Karen. I did a little research on this. It's not <laughs> only theft of services, it was specifically charged as theft of advertising services. Oh. Um, yeah, that, that's, what it, that's what it looks like. And then I went on Westlaw, and I could not find a single case that deals with this. Um, <laughs> but what it means is a person commits theft of advertising services when he like attaches or inserts an unauthorized advertisement in a newspaper or periodical. That's what they were charged with. And I think that if you just defended this case on the merits, you probably could have won because this was not an attachment. It was a full parody of the newspaper, as far as I could tell. But that's that's my understanding of what the charges were. I've never, ever, ever had somebody charged with that. I think what that law is supposed to protect is if, you know, um, somebody is, you know, has a car, uh, used car shop, and they start sticking ads into, like, the Wednesday Journal and don't pay for it, then they're supposed to, you know, you can be prosecuted for a misdemeanor because they haven't paid for the advertising. That's my understanding of what the charge is meant for. It just seems so bizarre. And, you know, you have things like The Onion, and you, you see parodies all the time. You see parodies this or songs on the Internet. I mean, wouldn't you say that the First Amendment would protect this kind of thing? Would that override this this charge? You know, I think that the First Amendment, you know, the way this was charged, you know, people said it's going to chill free speech and do all that stuff. And if the case would have gone forward, there certainly would have been First Amendment attacks. You know, as far as parody is concerned, you know, Larry Flint was sort of the king of parody, and he brought his case to the Supreme Court with Jerry Falwell, and the Supreme Court held that, you know, parody that nobody reasonably thinks could be real is protected because the things he was doing were so outrageous. This is a little different because this, this, if you read this, you would think that this was actually done by Northwestern. Um, but it would have been interesting to see this go through the court system and see motions to dismiss based on the chilling effect that this would have on free speech and all of those other issues. Um, but the way it was charged really didn't deal with First Amendment grounds. So I think it was just something that should have never been charged. I'm glad it was resolved the way it was, dismissed. 
um, you know, uh, you know, people do have a right to to, to, do, to do things like this, and they weren't trying to steal advertising services. Well, it, it, and it's a university. You know, it's a school where, yeah. where you're supposed to encourage that kind of that kind of speech. Um, a very it, liberal, a very liberal university. Exactly, exactly. So I just I just find this one this one this charge like bizarre. Why why would even have with all the crime going on, with all the different things going on that aren't being charged, and you know, and people aren't being held accountable. Uh, this seems to me. Sure. to a waste of, of prosecutorial resources, if, if nothing else. One of the things that your listeners should know, and I'm not sure what happened here, is that this was charged with misdemeanor, and misdemeanors don't always get vetted by the state's attorney's office. They can just be brought by the police on a signed complaint, and I'm not saying the state's attorney's office weren't brought in on this, but for felonies, the state's attorney's office has to give it their stamp of approval. This was a misdemeanor, so for, for all we know, it just could have been a police officer looked at the statute book and said, oh, I think this and this is right, and, and file charges, but who knows? Interesting. And this just brings me to a, a, a side topic, and that is the state's attorney. Uh, we're having a state's attorney election. Uh, Kim Fox is stepping down. How much does it affect your work as a criminal defense lawyer to have different states' attorneys? Is it kind of the same type of thing, or do certain states' attorneys um, have a different style that affects how you handle your cases? Um, you know, that, that's actually a, a, a very fascinating question. I can tell you right now that you know, I've been practicing through Dick Devine, Anita Alvarez, Ken Fox. I don't know if anybody else has been in there. And there has been a sea change um, from when I first started as a criminal defense attorney until now. One, there's less cases in state court to represent people because there's less charges that are brought. Um, you don't necessarily get to resolve cases quite as easy, but um, some you can. I had a client who we were just talking about Menard, was in Menard for a murder he did not commit. I filed a post-conviction petition, and I convinced the state attorney's office to drop it without a hearing, and they did the right thing. Um, Fifteen years ago, that wouldn't happen, so it's a mixed bag, but I can tell you that arrests are down, um, prosecutions are down in state court, so that's something that, you know, as a defense attorney, you certainly notice. Interesting. And in September of last year, the Safety Act went into effect abolishing cash bail. We talked to Eric Reinhardt, the Lake County State's Attorney, about it a few weeks ago. And there was a big concern that, oh, my gosh, people are going to be running out of uh, jail, you know, and, and, and recommitting crimes. As a criminal defense lawyer, you're in the trenches all the time, every day. What have you seen so far in the last few months when it comes to these kinds of things? Are more people being let out or fewer people being let out pending trial? I think, you know, people are calling it the Wild West right now because everybody's still trying to figure out how to do it. That's one aspect. But just speaking from my own experience, I have at least one or two clients that are in custody that had there been a cash bail system would have been out. I'm positive of that. Um, And I think that for my friends who do more state court work, uh, they have noticed that, you know, a lot of judges are holding people without bond who would otherwise be released or holding people, you know, uh, after the detention hearings. So I I shared your sentiment. I thought judges were going to crack down. I think some of them are doing that, you know, because now judges are concerned that if they let these people out, it's going to be, you know, all over the paper and it's going to be on their watch. So it's a lot easier for them to hold individuals in custody. And I think the main issue is just getting these cases resolved more quickly. You know, um, cases shouldn't take two or three years to resolve, uh, you know, unless it's like a murder or something like that, even those. So if cases are resolved more quickly, the bond issue is still important, but it's, it's not as you know, serious. 
Damon, thank you so much for joining us on this uh, Super, Bowl, so Super Bowl Sunday. And um, I appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back and talk about the next uh, slew of criminal cases that we're seeing. Damon Sharonis, can you give out your contact information? Karen, first, I want to thank you and say I cannot wait to read your book, oh. which is going to be amazing. Thank you. Um, killing, yeah, now you can yeah. find me on, uh, say what it is. I Karen, was going to say kill, Killing Time with John Wayne Gacy. It's up uh, for pre-order right now, but uh, March 26th is the day it comes out, and we're going to have a little party, and Damon, you're going to be there with me. Yes, and I've already pre-ordered it. All I'm right. I've already pre-ordered <laughs> it. Uh, I'm at www.chironislaw.com. And now I'm going to go watch, uh, I'm going to replay the uh, Super Bowl 20 where the Bears won uh, tonight. That's what I'm going to do. That's, that's what I'm going to watch. That sounds, that sounds like a good idea. Just have a beer. I do it every year. Okay. All right, Damon, you take All care. Right.